This is Speaking of Shakespeare, a series of conversations about things Shakespearean, with a focus on new digital technologies and also about developments in Shakespeare performance and education across the globe. I'm Thomas Dabbs, recording this introduction from Aoyama Gakuen University in central Tokyo. The following conversation is with Kyoko Matsuyama, who teaches English language and literature at Komazawa University in Tokyo. Professor Matsuyama is a very active Shakespeare scholar and educator who has a specialized and a delightful knowledge of how Shakespeare is represented in popular culture in Japan. This conversation is made possible with the help of institutional support from Aoyama Gakuen University. This series is also funded by a generous grant from the Japan Society for the Promotion of Science called Kaken. And this organization thankfully includes support for research in the humanities. Hello, Kyoko. There you are. How are you? I'm started living again because all the markings and all the things are over. <laughs> so I could say I'm recuperating. Well, we should uh, explain to our listeners that we have just ended not only an academic semester, but an academic year, that we mm -hmm. do start a new school year. We're in February now, and we do mm -hmm. start a new school year in April. So at the same time that we are finishing one year, we're starting planning for the next year. And I wanted to ask you, before we get going on your research and background and talk a little bit about Shakespearean education, I wanted to ask you, uh, as a personal interest, I don't remember <laughs> a year in my career here at this university where I have worked so hard. Does it feel the same for you? Yes, um, I think this is probably the first time in my teaching career that I had to put so much workload both to the students and to myself. Yeah. And it's a the psychological burden of having to teach online. And for people who may come to this video five years from now, we are still in this pandemic of 2020-21. And this is all new for us. And a lot was thrown on us including a lot of stress about not knowing. Yes. And I feel a little better now than I did last year when we were starting. But if I had known how much was coming through my way, and I know that you have been super busy. And I think too, that you have been given probably a lot of extra committee duties uh, to, to, to do because you have longer meetings because people start discussing what do we do? And we are, you don't seem to be a worrier to me, but I have colleagues who are super fine people, but they worry a lot. Uh, yes. And then yes. They, get, they get me worried. It's, it's sort of like- Yes, yes that's, uh, that's the, so true. What, shimpai uh, bio, worry sickness or something, you know, it spreads just like a, um, a virus does. And, uh, but I, I think that we're looking at a period now where we'll have a little bit of a break where we can uh, move off into other things that we like to do. Uh, although we do have uh, uh, entrance exams coming up and do you have entrance exams? Yes. 
coming soon, yeah. Yes, um, my university already had one and we have another one coming up. And you have to sit to grade the examinations? Yes, um, I actually I already did and I think I have to do another one again. <laughs> yeah, that's stressful too. Uh, yes. And it's long work. And for people in Japan, they understand this. This is routine. But in uh, North American and European universities, I don't think it's normal for faculty to grade incoming uh, undergraduate students that, that they are accepted through other standards. But in Japan, you do. And for your university. And some cases in, in my past has been over a thousand. Yes. And, and you're at uh, Komazawa uh, Women's mm -hmm. University. And I checked your location and mm -hmm. you're not far away from the Odakyu line. We, our university can have access from both the Odakyu line and the um, Keio line. And the KO line, yeah. Yes. Well, this this means a lot to people in Tokyo. Like when we were talking uh, to people who are from L uh, Los Angeles, they will talk about the 405 or the 10 or whatnot. And it's the phenomenon of living in Los Angeles, which freeway you're closest to, or the 101. And uh, in Tokyo, is uh, it's train lines. Yes. And there is a joke that people will meet, young people will meet and wonder, maybe they do suit each other and might have a relationship, maybe get married, but they just don't live on the right line. They have <laughs> incompatible train lines. It would take, it, it could take an hour and a half or two hours, even in the greater Tokyo area for them to, to see each other, right? So, uh, yes, yes. But, uh, I, I think that uh, the reason I bring this up is that my pre-pandemic, my wife and I used to go to Hakone a good bit, mm -hmm. to uh, Odawara on the mm -hmm. Odaku line on the romance car. Ah. So I have very pleasant memories and I'm looking forward to a time when we can return to, to that. Yes, me too. Same with me because um, I did get on the Shinkansen a lot to just hop onto anywhere I want to go. But now just going onto the local line and crossing the um, prefecture border, it's a bit of a problem. So I can understand. That's right. There were some restrictions on that. Uh, I don't think they were heavily enforced, but you, yeah. you were not supposed to do it. Yes. And, and maybe there still are. Are there still... Um, I think the state of emergency is still going on, so we shouldn't shouldn't cross the um, border too much. <laughs> so you're inside what's considered the Greater Tokyo area, uh, or I'm in the suburban Tokyo area. Suburban, yes. Uh, and so you're not supposed to go out. Is that right? Yes, I shouldn't go to Kanagawa, or Kanazawa. I shouldn't go to Saitama. Or Saitama. Those kind of things, yes. And I, I'm in the, I live in the greater Tokyo area and mm -hmm. we've been under the same kind of restrictions. We are the, um, I, I don't know, kind of like the, the lepers of Japan, uh, the people in the Tokyo area, because that's been the concentration of most of the uh, yes. inf infections, yeah. And so, yeah, there's more stress there. Uh, and Yeah. Uh, I want to ask, though, let's talk a little bit about education. I've been looking at your background a good bit, and you're mm -hmm. very interested in Shakespearean education and education uh, generally. 
And uh, I should say before we get into that, that I met you at the Gothic Literature Conference that was hosted by Samantha Landau at mm -hmm. Tokyo University, 2019. Yeah. And what a great conference. What a great group that of people. That was a great conference. I look forward to it again, if she could um, do it again, or if someone else could think of organizing a similar kind of conference. That was a great conference. Yeah, yeah. Well, she is, uh, she is talented in that regard, in many other regards, yeah. but she, she knows how to put on a, a good conference and organize it. And I, I, was, I loved uh, being able to participate and we were on the same panel. And when yeah. I met you, I said, you know, this seems just like a very happy kind of jolly, nice yeah. person. And you did a paper on Titus Andronicus and I'm going, hmm, you know, happy, nice people aren't usually drawn to <laughs> that particular play because uh, for those of us in Shakespeare, that's one of the most violent and yeah. uh, uh, just bellowing throughout the speeches and so forth. And you were showing in anime that mm -hmm. uh, drew from Titus Andronicus and one scene in particular where there's this very violent, uh, I don't, would you call it a murder assassination or just obliteration of a, of a cartoon character? But I remember jumping, you know, it was so <laughs> striking uh, what they did uh, in that anime and how they adapted Titus for a, a different type of narrative. And I just thought that was brilliant work. I uh, thank, thank you again for that paper. I've never thought of Titus <laughs> the same way since then. Uh, but uh, we're going to come back to Titus and to Tempest mm -hmm. and some other things here. But with the, um, I, I wanted to ask right off the bat, what was the largest challenge of teaching in your field this past year? Um, not being able to see the students' reaction was probably the biggest thing. Uh, because my university didn't... Um, encourage students to keep their cameras on, um, which I can understand because cameras can show quite a lot. And sometimes students feel uncomfortable showing their background or whatever that says too much about their family or their financial background or their condition. And that's, if that's comfortable for the students, I think that was good. But also to us, um, not being able to see the students' reaction was a bit stressful because as you know, like most of the time we look at students' faces and the atmosphere that they have, then go on or give a little more detailed explanation or change the wording or change the topic or change the view of the explanation so that the students can have that look of saying, okay, I understand now, or, okay, I got that, so could you go on, and those kind of facial expressions. Those kind of things are quite important. But with the camera off, you are literally speaking to a blank screen with just a student's name in dots. So that was a bit stressful. And yeah. also sometimes, I had to record, pre-record my lecture, and that was also stressful because you have to do it in the middle of the night. 
Yes, I in fact noticed an email from you that came mm-hmm. in uh, well after my bedtime. Uh, you, <laughs> you, are, you are a night owl. You like to work into the late night. And there was a period of my life when I was uh, younger that I did too. And now I'm, I'm pretty much done at about 10 o'clock at night. So if I want to work, I have to get up early. But it is stressful to, uh, to do these pre-recordings. And I found I did a few this year for a part-time class that I taught. And I found that more stressful than meeting them simultaneously uh, online. Uh, because at least when you're meeting them, you do feel that there's someone there. There's someone out there. And instead of, you know, look in this Zoom recording, you know, looking at yourself talking about a literary work or whatnot, it was, that was hard to get used to. Uh, are you guys going to change in April? Are you going to have, say, a hybrid classroom or uh, at our place, the key word has become high flex and we're not quite uh-huh. sure exactly what that means yet, but uh, they, they really would like us to get in the classroom, although not require all students to come to class. So that's a new new challenge. Currently, our university is saying they're planning to do a face-to-face class as much as possible. But with the changing condition, um, I think they might be looking into a combination of uh, face-to-face class and an on-demand class. Yeah. I'm hoping that if I see you at a conference or whatever a year from now, that this will all be a distant memory. That, uh, we really hope so. Uh, and I think for the students' sake, like um, not being able to interact with their, just to talk, just to have a chat um, that you shouldn't do in class. But those kind of things are very important to the students too. Yeah, yeah. Well, we've discussed this too, whether there have, there were some uh, professors, uh, some of our part-timers were for uh, what we call IE classes, integrated English, uh, mm-hmm. they use groups and they depend quite a lot on interaction of students. And I think a, a few of those professors may have required students to turn on their videos. And there were some student complaints, uh, not bitter complaints, but there were some students who said, we really prefer not to show where we live and, and that sort of thing. And they live in small places and have their mothers are passing through in the background trying to get everything or, or fathers or whoever's in their family. Um, so I, I didn't. And uh, I was fortunate. I had a, uh, what's called a Zimmy in Japan, but a seminar class. And mm-hmm. they, they came on after about two or three weeks, everyone came on because it was only 12 people. So mm-hmm. they, they lost their inhibition. And, um, and that worked out so much better. And in fact, sometimes the class went a, a little bit over time because we were, I could sense with them and with me that we just wanted to talk with people, <laughs> you know, just uh, find out about uh, each other and that sort of thing. But I, I, I see where that's, that's something. Uh, did, did, you, uh, did you learn anything in doing this that you didn't know about before that might improve your teaching or improve your your research even? Or did you feel that anything good came out of this in terms of your uh, learning how to teach maybe better? 
preparation is everything is I think that I learned the most that you need to have the information that you tell the students and also using the iPad much better would be another thing because if you want to show something that's important if you were in your my previous condition, you had to go on to a particular machine to show that part, but sometimes that doesn't work very well. But if you have a tablet and if you could just click it and switch it into your tablet and um, highlight the parts that you want to the students to see, see or read or to have an emphasis, I think those kind of techniques are good. And also asking quest students to hand in a question that they have is also important. Um, I did used to um, collect students' information or any kind of questions, but um, I wasn't able to put that into use very well. But uh, with the, um, my university used the um, G Suite, the Google Classroom system, and that was, that made it very easy for me to collect questions and then put that into another slide and answer those questions. Uh, yeah, I found Google Classrooms to be wonderful. That's not a university-wide thing for us, but several of us have been able to use it, and we've been very happy with that. And the students uh, said we took a survey, and uh, they, well, just, they, we had a WebEx video conferencing, and we used, a, I think, a dated uh, LMS, learning management series, uh, uh, learning management, whatever, uh, called Course Power, and mm -hmm. which requires a lot of downloading. And uh, they didn't like that. They liked Zoom and they liked Google uh, Classroom. We didn't use Google Meet. Did you use Google Meet? Uh, we had to they... use Google Meet. Uh, yeah. We were not allowed to use Zoom or anything else. Yeah. Google Meet was the standard and that's the only thing that we were allowed to do. Yeah. Some of the students did complain that um, because our university um, did everything on the Google Classroom system, students were saying that um, they get too many notifications, like your uh -huh. deadline for this one is now one-on-one um, -on -one and it's going to be due in a week or in a half an hour. Those kind of not notifications just um, drove them crazy. Yeah, yeah. And it worked the other way too. I got a, a lot of emails from students, uh, particularly at the beginning who, you know, we were just having trouble getting set up and there were uh, some anxiety and on their end. But uh, now I, you have done some articles about teaching Shakespeare in Japan. So I want to get a little more specific about your, mm -hmm. your views on, on teaching Shakespeare. And this of course is literature too, for any of our colleagues who teach uh uh, what we call a kiso enshu, like an introduction to our field. Mm -hmm. uh, I used to teach one, and I, I would not teach. I teach a couple of sonnets, maybe, but I would mm -hmm. uh, go to uh, what we'd call canonized books, like The Great Gatsby, or uh, particularly anything that I had they they could get a film version of from uh, a recent film. And uh, you did an article on reading Twelfth Night in modern form. How does that go? Is it better than trying to read Twelfth Night in the Shakespearean language? Even in the modern Japanese form, it's long and you have to use the imagination quite a lot if you're not used to reading plays. But um, when reading a novelized version and a very adapted version, 
um, which sometimes makes it easier for some students um, to start reading or get in touch with reading those kind of uh, materials. That's the, I think, the aim of um, using those kind of um, adapted or novelized forms as an introduction into peeking into the world of Shakespeare or peeking into any kind of literary works. Yeah. And um, I actually haven't taught Twelfth Night. Um, my teaching in Shakespeare is very limited right now, but um, I'm using those kind of books to show them that these used to be considered as a very easy access entertainment. Mm -hmm. And entertainment is something fun, mm -hmm. but also there are some entertainments that you don't like, which you really don't have to like them. You just have to know that it's there, <laughs> it's just not to your liking. I tried to teach the Shakespearean version of Twelfth Night uh, maybe two or three times, and mm -hmm. I felt like I had limited success, some success, because the general, the general gender bending that goes on in there and the, the that's the students catch that and they can, of course, use a Japanese translation. And then we try to enter into the Shakespearean language. And there's a, a pretty good film version of that that's, uh, that they have access to. And uh, yet the, the humor, what the uh, Sir Toby Belch and Andrew Aguchik, those humorous exchanges, which I think are fabulous entertainment, and it's very, very difficult to explain what the jokes are internally to those speeches. And of course, Feste has its philosophical reflections that are not easy to, to get across. And I wondered about the modern edition. Do you feel that they uh, are capturing at least some of uh, Feste or some of the humor? Actually, um, the concept of the fool, like yeah. the Feste is very difficult to explain in Japan. Um, because we didn't have those kind of people. They, I think they had a similar version, but not as active as that. Maybe that's because the novelized version that I used downplayed Fester very much, and so did um, Sir Andrew. He was just a comic character there. But um, also, I think having um, two plot lines or three plot lines going on at the same time also confuses some people. And I think that's one of the reasons um, the novelized version only concentrated on the relationship between Orsino, um, Cesario, Viola, mm. and um, Olivia. Mm. Yeah. Well, like you say, it, is, uh, it can be a portal into more, uh, into deeper study. And so I was interested in that. And I'm also interested in your reflections on teaching unfamiliar material with familiar resources. Now, tell us a little bit more about that. Unfamiliar material is what, I've, what I'm teaching, like the English literature or the literature in a different language, mm. in a different cultural background. And with the familiar material is... Um, like the manga or the animation or the, um, the novels and novels as in the light novels, like um, in Japan, it's called the light novel. But I think the basic concept was for the juvenile, 
um, the young adult novels that's mm. easy to read, that kind of thing, uh, easy access to some people. And some people think that being able to read those things is something quite familiar. Mm. So that's why I use those as an entrance yeah. or introduction. Yeah, I like that. And that's what I thought you were talking about. The uh, the way we, if you say generally the West, you know, we go to Shakespeare and then we see something in a movie or popular culture and go, ah, that came from yeah. Hamlet or ah, but this is the reverse. This yeah. is starting out with popular culture and moving back the other direction using young adult novels. And I am very happy to hear this because when I was in uh, middle school and high school, uh, there, we were given some very, very difficult literary novels to consider. And I think what happens is I was in an advanced placement class. We're supposed to be college bound. So mm -hmm. the, if, in Japan, it'd be third year high school. Teachers would see, well, what are they teaching in college? And pull that book down. And then the second year high school would pull the book from the third year, trying to thinking that this is advancing uh, students more. And we ended up with these oh, what, James Joyce's uh, Dubliners, which is it's <laughs> wonderful. But we when uh, and these uh, incredibly difficult plays and we did King Lear, which was very difficult uh, for us instead of there was one teacher who brought in, I think it's John Knowles, a book called A Separate Piece. And I read it cover to cover and loved it. And if I'd had more of those books to read, I could have advanced to people who are doing more sophisticated things with literary conventions and Shakespeare, I think more fluidly. It could have worked better that way, but they hit us with the very, very, very hard uh, to, to read stuff. I think in eighth grade, we had to read George Eliot, S Silas Marner, <sighs> and that didn't go over. Uh, so I love the idea that you're using uh, what the young adult fiction in the what Twilight series in the West and um, Harry Potter, of course, famously. Uh, we learned, I think, in the 90s and, and uh, later that if you want, if you want to get young people to read, give them something that they like, you know, and you will develop among many people a habit of reading and learning and, and so forth. So that's great on your, on your regard. Uh, so the young adult, is Twilight popular in Japan? It wasn't as popular as the US or the UK, but the concept of vampire has been something of interest to the students um, from the, I think the middle of the 90s to the beginning of the 2000s. I think there are quite a few animations or mangas that um, dealt with those kind of, of um, themes like the vampires and the werewolves and those kind of things. Yeah, a lot of fun and for them and for us. My daughter, I only know through my, my daughter's 30 years old now, but uh, I, would, I would keep up with books and it changes from uh, very quickly from not even yeah. generation to generation. There may be one series that's popular for about three years and then another one comes in. For her, it was Kato Kato Chaimu. And she read the whole series 
and what I noticed and what she pointed out to me is that if you're in middle school first year, mm-hmm. they will incorporate the kanji that you're supposed to use that year, but not not further along. So you're learning your kanji as you're uh, reading your manga. So I just think that's a wonderful approach. Now, I am also fascinated with your uh, background. I'm aiming to get to a guy named Edmund Keene. And Uh, you you and I share an enormous uh, love and interest of that period in theater history. But let's go, let's go to you first. You graduated high school in Canada. Yes. And how long were you in Canada? I was in Canada for four years. So I went into Canada at grade um, nine and then um, graduated high school at grade 12. So four years at a local English speaking school, a public school. In terms of adapting to Canada, did you find it uh, horrifying at first to be that age and suddenly be thrown in with a bunch of native speaking English uh, Canadians? Canadians tend to be famously nice people, but they are not always nice. Uh, you know, they're, they're people after all. So, you know, maybe one in a thousand is not so nice. Did you find that you could, that, that you adjusted to the mm-hmm. social element of your school? Actually, um, Canada was the second place that I lived abroad. I lived in Australia uh, for four years when I was in uh, kindergarten and elementary school. But I was at a Japanese, um, all-day Japanese school. So, but still, I was able to retain the listening ability that I had. Mm -hmm. That worked well when I went to Canada that I was able to hear what people were saying. But when it comes to um, having contact with other students, I think it was a bit of a different story because we, I was in an ESL class, the English as a second language class. So I probably had the longest contact with those kind of students at the very beginning when I went into grade nine. So we had a similar background. Some people came from Taiwan. Um, I think some came from Hong Kong um, because it was before the return of the Hong Kong to China. Also, I think I had some students who came from Afghanistan, uh, Nicaragua, Brazil. So we had so many different backgrounds. So we didn't care too, too much about um, whether we were able to integrate into the society at that point where were you in canada again what uh town i was in alberta calgary okay Okay. so that's sort of the middle and and sort of like the american west so so you yes you're not in a cosmopolitan city like montreal or toronto uh, vancouver for instance uh you're you're more in Mm. a smaller uh, Western area. Mm, actually, um, Calgary, because they had a huge um, natural gas and um, oil, it was a bit cosmopolitan in that sense. We had many people, and also um, we had a very large um, Asian um, community, especially the Chinatown was big. So 
um, I wouldn't say it was as cosmopolitan as Vancouver, but we had that similar air. Okay, so you were not in a uh, in a small town atmosphere. You were in a big city, and you had yes. Now, what happened though when you went to, to I don't know about Australia, but when you went to Canada, instead of being a Japanese national, you suddenly are Asian, and you use that word yourself. Uh, you know, you're you're grouped into the Asian community very often for. Uh, good intentions, reasons, you know, okay, these people are in a minority situation and we have to make sure that we have the resources and that we're sensitive to their uh, adaptations and so forth. But I'm certain that you identified as Japanese, uh, certainly not as Hong Kong based or Taiwanese or, 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 or Korean. And then when you get to the States, it you can be kind of grouped together. Uh, in the in there, I'm not not the states, the Canada, North America, in their way of thinking. When I started living in Canada, I always identified myself as Japanese. And when people asked, "Are you Chinese?" and I would always say, "No, I'm Japanese." But then, when you start to go to school, or actually when you actually come back from Canada, that kind of things start to change, and also. When I start going to obviously conferences and those kind of thing, I think that's also another turning point that changed my notion that when people look at me from outside, yes, I think I'm going to be categorized into that Asian huge category. And um, I think um, to assume that I'm in that category and think that are you from which, which is your background and asking those kind of questions, um, has both good intentions. And sometimes I think um, it's not, maybe not a correct way to say it, but just to to look down at some people. I think that kind of thing um, happens a lot. Oh, I'm certain it does. I'm certain it does. (laughs) Not not everyone. And uh, I get it, not so much in Tokyo, but I've had a, a much, much smaller experience, but being a foreign national in Japan, uh, I felt it more when I lived in Hiroshima, where uh-huh. so many people, so many, the vast majority of people were wonderful, nice. I, I, um, I have a, a nostalgic feeling about Hiroshima, but they were not used to seeing foreign nationals, uh, and p- the children in particular would very often react. And it was the mothers who would scold their children a bit and say, "Don't do that. Don't point at this person," and then apologize to me. That was a little more irritating maybe than the child just saying you know look at that you know and, and uh, <laughs> it would be what gaijin da, gaijin da. i thought that was kind of cute and then the mother would be embarrassed you see so uh, uh so to a smaller degree rarely in tokyo do i get anything like that but i do know the feeling uh where you're grouped into i'm not tom from south carolina in america uh, i'm a foreign national and then the next question is of course where are you from and after you're here for a certain number of years, you want to say, ah, Tokyo, I mean, that's where I've lived for years, <laughs> but, uh, but that's not, and I understand that too, it is a curiosity that people have. And so no one individual is trying to hurt your feelings or do that. Yeah. Collectively, when the question comes over and over, you know, who are you, where are you from? It almost creates the feeling like you don't belong right where you are. And 
and, and why shouldn't you, right? Did you ever receive Canadian citizenship? Um, no, um, because um, my father was there for, going to be there for, uh, for a very short period. Uh, I don't know whether four years is a short period or not, but yeah. uh, we were there just for his job and we weren't into um, getting a citizenship. Yeah. And um, in Japan, you cannot have a dual citizenship. Oh, that's right. So, I forgot about that. I probably yeah, shouldn't so. even ask the question. Yeah. You, you, <laughs> no. have to, uh, you have to choose at the age of 20 or 21, I think. If you, yes. Yeah. I've never had a any citizenship other than Japanese. But as you said, children could be cruel. Yeah. When I was in elementary school in Japan, I came back from Australian, um, Australia. Yeah. Can you guess what the students started to say? Even though I have a Japanese nationality, a Japanese citizenship, they always pointed me as an Australian. The Japanese children. I was children. never born and bred purely in Japan. That's it. Uh, Kyoko, I hear this over and over. Every year we have returnees who we interview and we, mm -hmm. they're very selective and they are typically very, very good. And of course their English skills are very advanced, but I mean, their thinking skills are very good too because they're children of education parents and they've had a lot of experience and like you did. And so we want them, you know, these are great students. And I ask them this question every year, you know, how it wasn't, how did you adapt when you left and then what about coming back? And invariably they say returning was the hardest part. But still, even when I um, came, um, entered college, it was still the same because um, you have to tell, or when you do a self-introduction, which, um, which high school did you graduated from? And there you go. I, am, I had to spill the beans there. And they just give me that look saying, okay, you're not pure Japanese. Like, what do you mean pure? <laughs> Those kind of things do happen. Um, I'm trying to think of their cultural comparisons. I do know of a political candidate, and I said before, and another, I'm from the American South, which more uh, Inaka, uh, my background, and South Carolina is a smaller state uh, with some very wonderful things, but then uh, some other things that aren't so wonderful, like anywhere else. But when I was growing up, there was a very strong North-South feeling still. And I remember a political candidate who was exquisitely well-qualified running for governor, and he had done his uh, undergraduate at Harvard in uh, Massachusetts. And I think uh, a master's degree after that and had come back and worked as an attorney. But 15 years later, his opponent's saying, listen, he's one of them. He's not from, <laughs> he's not from around here. He's one of those Yankees, right? And it had, um, it, it had some traction in the political campaign. There was this kind of lack of trust. And it is just ridiculous. It really is a ridiculous thing that people think that way. Uh, and you see, that's something I don't have to be part of. I don't have to feel like I'm not Japanese. I know I'm not Japanese. And, uh, and I don't feel a sense of um, uh, what uh, being uh, somehow minimalized in some way because of that. Now, has that feeling kind of receded as you've continued your career? 
you you finished. You went to Waseda, and uh, for our viewers, that's a, the, an elite university and one of my personal favorites. Uh, frankly, because my wife, she has family who graduated Waseda, and she knows the Waseda song, and, uh, and she she loves the she loves the Waseda spirit. But you did undergraduate there, and you went all through to your PhD level at yes. Waseda. Yes. Uh, and so, you know, at some point, did you feel like you belonged to fully to, of course, to the Waseda community, but did that recede or is it still going on now? It's still there because when I start speaking, they notice that that doesn't sound like a purely Japanese educated person speaking. <laughs> It's the problem of just the muscle around here, but still, they say, okay, where are you from? And how were you educated? <laughs> the Japanese word is kibishi. It's just, too, <laughs> it's, it's just too strict because we all know there's a Hokkaido dialect is far different from Tokyo, Ben, Tokyo dialect. Mm -hmm. Kyushu is far different from both. There's uh, famously Hiroshima, uh, dialect, yeah. and uh, you know the dake is jaken, and uh, uh, and people, you know, have learned essentially Tokyo dialect in Japanese schools, so they kind of are, if not bilingual, by dialect, and would be careful not to speak too much in their say Kansai dialect if they're trying to be successful business business people in Tokyo, and maybe the reverse. I'm not sure, but. How would you know, how would you be able to, to tell that your accent is ever slightly not Tokyo accent or whatever? One thing is that sometimes my Japanese accent is a mishmash of West and the East. Because when I was in the Japanese school, um, we had students from everywhere. Students from Osaka, um, Tokyo. Um, Hokkaido, Tohoku, every kind of students who brought in their own dialect. Another thing that they would say is that when I speak English, they notice that my accent and the, another thing that they say is the fluency. That's not Japanese educated product. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's what I think they can notice. Yeah, and I have sensed that, and uh, I can't go into specifics uh, because it's, it's very close to where I work and live. But it, there is there's a problem when your English is too good or sounds too native, and people can pick that up uh, without maybe a kind of accent that would be a standard Japanese learner of English. And I can, of course, hear that too, and very pleased to hear that. But uh, yeah, I can see how that would be the case. Now, we're talking about language, and at some point you started studying Shakespeare. Now, are we going back to Canada, or when did you kind of, when was the turning point in your career where you decided, I want to study this literary stuff and maybe Shakespeare? Was it always there or was it kind of a revelation in school, a, a class or teacher or something like that? It was actually a, at my high school in Canada. Uh, we had to study um, three Shakespeare plays in three years. Um, we had to read Romeo and Juliet, Macbeth and King Lear. King Lear. 
um, but somehow interesting enough, um, Romeo and Juliet, I already read it in the novelized version. Um, I think it's the translation of um, Charles Lamb's Failed. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tales from and, Yeah. And so you, you read that version rather than the uh, Shakespearean version? Actually, school? I read that version when I was in probably in elementary school or something oh. in Japanese. Oh, okay. And, and then, then you went to then I read the um, actual English version or the Shakespearean language version <laughs> in grade 10. In grade yeah. 11, we had to read the Shakespearean English version of Macbeth. Um, the same with King Lear. But what made me thinking about going in and studying Shakespeare was actually King Lear. It was probably one of the hardest plays to read. It's long and um, it's very difficult to imagine what kind of condition people are in because you're you're a teenager. You cannot imagine how people in their 70s or 80s feel. But still, the teacher who taught us that, King Lear, um, was able to... Um, break that down into the psychological um, side of how people feel or react. And interesting enough, it was probably one of the hardest things that I had to read, but that also interested me. But how can people create such a thing? And how people's imagination could go on? And analyzing those kind of things was at that point quite interesting to me. And also, at um, grade 12, I know I had to return to Japan. And um, I know I had to choose something to study because going to university was something very automatic in my family. So I was wondering what what I want to study. And then, okay, so Shakespeare is interesting. And um, I know that um, when it comes to studying in Japan, um, my three years in Canada, had some effect so I probably won't be able to study early modern Japanese literature or even like the 10th century Japanese literature because I haven't been educated in that but if it's English maybe um, I could use my background well and also I thought Shakespeare was fun fun at that time <laughs> so that's why I chose um English literature as a my major and Shakespeare as my interest. So uh, you had the exquisite for you, for what you wanted in your life, in your career, uh, you had the exquisite experience of going to a school where Shakespeare was taught as a literature uh, on the high school level. And you would not have had that experience if you had been in a Japanese school. Yes. I'm, I'm learning from uh, my colleague Igarashi Sensei and from other yeah. my students that you would get a world history class where you would learn to name Shakespeare. You would yes. maybe learn to name Romeo and Juliet, but literary study, as you understand it in a Canadian or American or British or German school, uh, does not happen on the because of the, of the focus on practical language, learning practical language and getting prepared for, you know, the, um, to become part of the Japan corporate structure uh, in, in, in a certain company or whatnot. And so you had that advantage when you went to Waseda. Yes. Yeah. Did you have te- teachers along the way that convinced you that you would like to 
continue going to graduate school? That's a big decision. My um, third year seminar teacher was um, the, uh, told me that, are you interested in coming into coming to graduate school? Interesting enough, although he wasn't a Shakespearean teacher, <laughs> his major is in um, John Keats, so he teaches oh. poetry. Yeah. And I loved his class, and that's why I chose his seminar for third year. What was his name? Uh, Kiyoshi Nishiyama. Yes, okay. Excellent. John Keats. I think that if I had to choose number two to Shakespeare, it would have been uh, poetics and beginning with perhaps the romantics and certainly John Keats. Yes. Uh, and so what a wonderful experience to have a fine professor. Uh, and, and so you decided to continue on and move into more specialized study of Shakespeare as you went to your master's, of course, and somewhere along the way, you got into theater history. You got an interest in, and I guess you, you felt like at some point you were very competent in the primary sources of Shakespeare and you became interested in theater and how, and what adaptations, later adaptations, and me too. Uh, <laughs> I've done research and work on that. And when I saw in your background, your interest in Edmund Keen, I said, yay, we are up. <laughs> We are, we are uh, in, of the same family in that regard. Uh, I found when I first ran across Keene, some biographies, and I think a couple of them were spurious, not, um, uh, not reliable, but just if any of it were true, he's one of the most interesting Shakespearean characters, long after Shakespeare, of course, in the early 19th century, out there in the whole history of a lot of interesting Shakespearean people. It's Edmund Keene, and you have focused on a good bit of your research on Keene. Now, what drew you to Keene? I started doing the theatre history in my master's um, paper. My supervisor then said, why don't you um, write a chapter about the uh, theatre history? And um, at that time, my master's paper was on Midsummer Night's Dream, and I had to go on and start doing that kind of um, writing that kind of chapter. And very kindly, my professor suggested that in September. And I had to hand in my um, master's paper in January. <laughs> but interesting enough, that material um, was quite fascinating, especially with um, Midsummer Night's Dream, the um, description of the fairies tend to be very interesting. It could start with a ballet dancer and then turn into some kind of creature with feathers and so on. The reason I started doing um, Edmund Keane was when I went to my PhD level, I at last got into the professor that who um, drove me or actually drew me into the graduate school system. And as, you, as I said, he was a romantic poet, um, study scholar. Mm. And his seminar was basically romantics. And then I realized that I cannot switch to romantic poets. Shakespeare was there and it had that grip on me. Mm -hmm. It wouldn't let go. <laughs> <laughs> then I started looking into materials that could fit in with both the romantics and the Shakespeare. And then I started going into 
and looking at theatre critics. And that's when I met John Philip Campbell and Edmund Keane. And Edmund Keane was, as you know, the favourite of the Romantics, especially um, Hazlitt. So although Hazlitt criticised Edmund Keane quite heavily, but still he was a fan of Keane in that sense. Yeah, That's why I started... um, looking into um, Edmund Keane. We might, if we saw him now, if he were living now, accuse him of overacting. Yes. That's a Japanese word too, is overacting. It's a, and because he did the melodramatic and uh, really histrionic, according to what I've read, but he was captivating when he got it right and was a Drew audience where he was at Drury Lane and that theater, I think, was about to fail when they brought him yes. on uh, for roles. And he was part of their revival at that time. And, and I, I think I'm right in saying that. Yes. But he, ha- he was excessive also in his love interest and uh, was falling out uh, with the father of whatever the woman he was. Uh, I don't know. Uh, and he made it to America and did. Yes. So he was an international figure. And and America's a lot further away in the early 19th century than it is now. And, but you go in kind of a lineage there from Keene to Kimball and Keene and Kimball are are dealing with in the 19th century, an extremely popular Shakespearean play, not an academic iconic high cultural subject this was the greatest this is the rock concert this is where everything's happening and i know in american theaters i'm a little better with american theaters but those theaters had to be policed they had to put uh officers of the peace officers in there because of the potential of fighting and breaking out and uh, and uh and it kind of culminated famously by uh, mid-century with the Astor Place riots in New York, um, which had to do with a, a, a sense of competition between whether we're going to have an American actor play Macbeth or a British actor, both very uh, famous. And I won't go into that. That's another subject. But the, the, the popularity of the Shakespearean theater and how nobody understood this yet as this academic subject. And I think that's what took you into anime and manga and really more recently, um, the, the notion of how in Japan, we probably are away from the, the mandate to treat Shakespeare as a great cultural Western icon. We can, and, and you and I are working a little bit on this right now, we can play around with it. We can kind of go back to this period of the Keen and Kimball and raucous stage where, uh, you know, no, no telling how this guy played Macbeth. It might've looked ridiculous to us, but you have run across all of this uh, material. And in fact, you're considered sort of the resident expert. Uh, I know that from, yes, I've been uh, talking around. It's, well, no, you, you have to call, you have to talk to Masayama Sensei about this uh, because she, she knows more about this than I do. But uh, you, you sent me a, a, a good bit of information and uh, in manga and comic, you, we talked about the Titus Andron, Andronicus. Uh, there's this other one that I looked into called Blast mm-hmm. of Tempest that mm-hmm. uh, really does draw in thematically 
some of those uh, Tempest themes from Shakespeare, and they're available on YouTube. Yes. And Blast of Tempest, uh, you've studied that more uh, completely than I have, and of course, your ability to to detect the nuances in the Japanese language. Uh, I saw one YouTube video where there was English subtitles, but I doubt they really capture it. Yeah. But it's fascinating in its own right. Did you find that to be a, a good example of anime, just, just anime, not Shakespeare? But That started as a manga. And when I started reading, I thought this is interesting because it uses Hamlet at the beginning. And um, Hamlet was the main theme of The Blast of Tempest, but the concept of revenge is something that doesn't fit well with current society mm-hmm. anywhere in the world. Mm-hmm. And that's why I think um, Tempest was incorporated into it, because when it comes to Hamlet, when everything is over, everyone's dead. <laughs> but... Yeah. And also, even though the revenge is complete, everyone's dead. <laughs> but when it comes to Tempest, you can have your revenge, but you don't have any carnages. You, yes, there, there are no corpse, corpses <laughs> yes. uh, on the stage. Yes. Um, although and, it comes very close at some points. Yes. There again is another thing that's very interesting to me, pulling in... Uh, Shakespeare, number one, adapting Shakespeare for your needs as an anime or manga artist, right? Not necessarily to impress people who are in the know, you know, to show you that you can make literary references to great classical poets or to Shakespeare or to Keats, but there because of the material is rich and it fits with yes. what you, your goals as yes. in, in the narrative and in the manga. Uh, and, you know, for anybody who doesn't know this, manga artists are celebrated not only in Japan, across the world now as being artists. And I'm kind of hoping that they don't go the way that Shakespeare went into someday becoming iconic and taught in universities. And I do like the idea of them be, being taught and remembered and culturally preserved. They strike to the heart of the of, of your life as a Japanese not national to my students. They all grew up with this. Uh, I would say almost a mythology, depending on which manga were was part of the culture at the yes. time they were coming yes. up. It's essential to uh, formative development in the and it's it's your it's your pathway to your imagination to to building your imagination. Uh, which is what we want as teachers. That's what we want to inspire <laughs> as teachers. And they might be in many cases doing a better job of it uh, as a group than we are able to do in our institutional settings. Uh, let, let's think of some other examples here. And you sent some to me and I'm trying to remember there's a Romeo and Juliet kind of adaptation. This is fairly recent uh, in... Yeah, um, I think it's this one. Um, yeah, I think it's this one. <laughs> yeah, look at that. Uh, okay, and it, yeah. there's a Shakespeare right there. Yes, Shakespeare, Romeo and it Juliet. says, yeah. yes. And so is it uh, graphic? Is it have, does it have pictures? Um, this is a novelized version, but it do have, um, where did it go? Pictures um, like this. Um, this is the... Balcony scene. Look at that. Look at that. 
That's just wonderful. That's just wonderful. And you've read that. And do you think that it does a good job with the Romeo and Juliet story? Yes, uh, it does have a um, bit of a plot change, but should I say, Romeo and Juliet's plot is known to quite a few Japanese, but they don't know the details. So to fill in those details, I think it's great. And also some people feel sad that from the modern notion, being able to marry someone that you like is not a choice, but it's their own right. But um, as you know, Dramindula is a tragedy. They couldn't do it, so they end up taking their lives. But this um, version has an epilogue that says that they saw a couple that looks very much like Romeo and Juliet, not in Verona, but in Genoa. So... And they say that their body is gone somehow. So it has gives that notion that there is some hope. And also room for a sequel. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so they suddenly, yes. they suddenly show up um, in uh, Padua or some other place. Yes. And, yeah. Um, and, and that's just wonderful. And the, of course, the publisher, the writer, everyone felt the freedom to yes. use this story and to do that. Yes. And, and uh, not fall under the gaze of uh, judgmental film critics or academics or people who say that's not Shakespeare. That's well, that, that's just that's just wonderful stuff. Now, what do you think you will be doing in terms of research? And uh, like I said before, you and I and uh, Reina Endo, my student, are working on an article that I've been completely delinquent on doing. I am the bad. I'm the weak link to the chain right now because we have been slaughtered this year with work, as we were saying before. And I just can't get my head straight. But I, after we get through this grading, it's going to be open. And I promise this time, uh, you, you probably think the dabs, you just can't trust him. You know, he keeps setting up these deadlines. I'm setting up deadlines and then missing my own deadlines. I. <laughs> uh, uh, but anyhow, we're talking about As Asobi Gokuro in mm -hmm. this artic article, which for our, our listeners is a very specific and kind of hard to articulate sense of playfulness that is kind is unique in Japanese culture, but it's playfulness. And so all cultures have playfulness, but what I'm working on now in this paper is trying to, in English, describe it to an international audience where they understand the distinction in Japanese. And I, I think you, you would have many different opinions on this, but I was given the example that if you have a nice new car and you want to hang something like a little doll from the uh, rear view mirror, mm -hmm. But that's a sense of asobi gokuro. Mm -hmm. It's just something that's, that's just happy to see. And so at one point, I'm going to try to, uh, I'm going to try to explain it, but I have seen the term used for gaming culture, which is another thing in, in Japan, which is, uh, and these um, digital researchers have talked about asobi gokuro actually justifying the violence of some mm -hmm. of the of some of these uh, games. And um, 
they mentioned one, I don't want to get too far away from Shakespeare, uh, but one particular game that has been actually um, sanctioned more by the um, well-meaning liberal community in Canada, I believe, because it's just too violent. It has uh, a, a young man is, uh, is wrongfully ac accused of murder, I think, and has to go to prison. And your job is to sort of get him out of prison. And when you make mistakes and he makes wrong moves, he's, he's sexually assaulted, he's beaten, He's a, every every bad thing in the world happens to him. He said, and these guys argued that because of the extent of the violence, that there is almost it's like a Quentin Tarantino movie in a sense, where it's it's so bad that you begin laughing, <laughs> right? So in Kill Bill, when you chop off someone's arm and the blood just keeps spewing and spewing, spewing, there's a sense of playfulness finally because. It's, uh, it's being, I guess you call campy and going back to slasher movies or what, but they tried to argue that. And I put this beside, I had a few students last year who are gamers and they're women. Mm -hmm. Now, I, I thought of that as more of a man's thing or a boy's thing, but these were serious women gamers. And I asked them about this and they go, no, it's just violent. <laughs> It's not, it's not that much playfulness. It's just violence. So are you familiar with the gaming community or? I think um, the male gaming community and female gaming community is very different. Japanese women's gaming community is in a way quite big in one sense that they have games that are specific to women's interests love story game boys that goes love, on or boys, boys love boys love is a is a genre of novels okay. and um yeah. animations and mangas it's like a simulation game that you merge in and you do some um adventures with these good-looking guys <laughs> or um <laughs> you have another get kind of game that romeo and juliet um, game released for PlayStation Portable and the player is going to play Juliet and you will meet Romeo who is the prince of vampire and Juliet is a family of vampire slayers <laughs> it follows through with the, um, the topic or the plot but also you have to fight your way through or you have to um, choose between two options and which option will lead you to a happy ending and those kind of things. So you sort of begin with the name recognition of Romeo and Juliet, but you don't feel yes. any loyalty to telling the story of Romeo and Juliet, but you, you bring in this element from the play itself. I mean, there's a lot of violence in that play. Uh, mm -hmm each year my students I teach it each year and each year my students are very surprised to see the level of violence uh, so mm -hmm. of, even lo love is violent even of course you know Romeo says there's nothing more violent than being in love and unrequited and it hurts and all of this so maybe you could argue that some of that theme plays into the uh, to that particular uh, game well I, please send that to me the reference <laughs> Because I could, I could integrate that into what we're doing. I think it's in the genre of the training game that you 
grow a character or develop a character through fighting or through any kind of um, uh, material that's given to you so that you're given a character that says it's he or she is from level one and you put that character through a training and then he or she is going to be in, in like level 99 or complete those kind of games are quite popular both in male male game genres and female game genres mm -hmm. i did play some video games when i was younger but it was so they were not nearly as advanced as they are now and I would probably look back into it, but I'm afraid I'll become addicted because the last time I got into a game, I found myself spending a lot of hours that right now I just don't have, you know, may, maybe after I retire or something I can get into, but. Yes. Uh, it's uh, very addictive. Yeah. But, Extremely addictive. And um, it is taking away my time right now. <laughs> <laughs> No, you're not. You're doing research on popular culture when you're playing those <laughs> games, and you never know. Uh, Igarashi Sensei at uh, Toyo University pointed out that the references in Anpanman uh, mm -hmm. to uh, Ham Hamlet or, or yes. Hamletto and other uh, other things, and we need to make sure not to forget that too, because <laughs> that's that's early childhood education, and of course not violent at all. Uh, uh, bread man is a, a hero with the unpine un kind of a soy substance but uh anyhow what else do you think you might be interested in researching in uh the coming months and uh year or whatnot do, are you are you currently working on any project uh that uh, other than what we're working on or looking into anything i'm still working on with the um the animation Blast of Tempest and the animation Psychopath, but also there is a new animation that's going to come up, I think, hopefully this year. Um, it's called The Funeral of the Rose King. Uh -huh. It's mainly about Richard III. That's been turned into a comic for quite a while, and it's going to be turned into an animation soon. The interesting thing about it is that the main character Richard is not a man he is um I, I think this is the right term um androgynous uh -huh. and being that character he is excluded from the family and so on and instead of having that very ugly um deformed Richard you have this very beautiful Richard who's in a uh, I'm not sure what to say. Not, he's in a, a, a trans state where you're not yes. quite sure of gender. You can't identify. Uh, there's no gender identification. Uh, what, a, what a fascinating idea. What a fascinating idea. And the writer is very popular, a manga artist. So I think um, it's in its 13th or 14th book. So it's been running for a very long time. As a manga, but they mm -hmm. are going to move it into anime. or Yes. Uh, and that has not quite yet begun. Yes. So when it does begin, then you will be at the front of the line to write a little article about what's going on there with the anime. Yes. Yeah, very, very good. 
Uh, I want to return to psychopaths for just a second. Mm -hmm. I had forgotten that when we were talking about it before. Uh, I, I could, I hadn't forgotten it. I just had forgotten whether it was path or pass, but it's psychopaths. It's psychopaths, yes. Yes, and, uh, but there's a play on the word there. Yes. Psychopath, psychopaths. Yes. Okay, uh, which is another very, of course it happens in any language, but it's a, a very distinctly Japanese thing too. The word plays, uh, you know, the double, the double meanings that you yes. get out of words and co compound words that you do, this is Shakespearean, really. Uh, and actually, um, in Japanese, what we know as a psychopath is in Japanese, it's psychopath. And the title of the animation is psychopath. So it, ha it yes. already has that double meaning built, built in. Is that would that be done yes. in katakana? Or do they use the Roman letters? It's using the Roman letters, but um, the pronunciation is completely Japanese. Yeah, yeah. So people will assume that psychopath is that the anti-social thing, but also the title of the play itself or the animation itself do deal with those kind of things. And again, of course, with the name, you're expecting to have some uh, exciting uh, violence <laughs> and uh, yes, bloodshed, <laughs> blood, bloodshed, and even though it's uh, is maybe an animated or or whatnot, is a uh, uh, it's still bloodshed. I mean, you get involved with these characters and so forth. So yeah, I don't know if that's um, if that's completely playful or not, but uh, we'll we'll see. Uh, there does seem, and I don't know if it's more so in Japanese society, you know, years ago when uh, we, when I was much younger and uh, we were told that we were going to learn from movies and television, all of the young people were going to become super violent going to these uh, movies and seeing, and um, you know, I was thinking at the time, listen, I just, I'm, I'm in high school. We just finished King Lear and I know enough about Macbeth to tell you that no uh, Clint Eastwood movie that I just saw is any more violent than those plays. If anything's going to make us violent, because now they are, well, even in Clint Eastwood, but violence is punished in the end. I mean, good wins over evil hmm, to a degree. Lear, it seems like just everybody loses. But the um, and then, of course, when games came along and video uh, games and, and that sort of stuff, that was supposed to destroy a whole generation, of particularly young men, turning in, them into, you know, violent, aggressive males who didn't know right from wrong. And it didn't seem to do that. And all of my students, all of whom read manga, many of those manga get increasingly more violent as you get older. Uh, it's just, it seems to be totally separated that they are uh, inured. It's not like they would see someone hurt on the street and not respond as normal and caring human beings, but that there is a sense of a, a distance that you may know about better than I do. There is a sense of distance and maybe a kind of where it doesn't, it doesn't penetrate your soul. It doesn't mess up your mind. It's just interesting. And, and so I, I don't know how to describe that in any language. It, uh, like being the target of violence is not something they want, but 
see it as an entertainment. And then in the end, when that evil is punished, they feel that whatever the, the action they're doing is right, is going to be um, given back as something that's correct. I think that's, and also I think it works as some kind of morale tale in some cases. Uh, so the ending... um, like um, as you know, the very popular um, manga and the film and the animation, the Kimetsu no Yaiba, it has broke the record of the Japanese movie sales. I actually haven't read the manga or the saw the animation because I know it's going to, to be very addictive. So I just left it out. But I hear stories from friends and articles that that manga changed the notion of being good is good. Being good is okay. It's not nerd. It's not uncool. Um, but being good or being honest or I think it's the word is like um, in Japanese it's yuiko, yuiko. It's good. That changed because until then being um, a fudo was cool. Being violent was cool. Um, but although the Kimetsu no Yaiba is violent, um, it, it is a, I don't know whether this is the correct term, a reasonable violence or a violence in defense or those kind of things. Yeah. And the, I'm going to stretch it a little bit, mm -hmm. but I'm thinking that uh, particularly with my Japanese students, and I think a lot of people who grow up with uh, education parents and, and reasonable, you know, in very stable households and, and have a, a relatively normal childhood, uh, it, you might be able to argue that having some exposure to the darker side of human nature is, is good. Otherwise, you don't know who you are, you know, that, oh, I'm one of the good people because now I've seen the bad people. And, you know, because you didn't grow up in a war-torn country uh, or on a, um, a street where there's a lot of, uh, uh, you know, people are shooting each other or out in the country where people may be hurting each other and being very violent, um, uh, depending on where you live or where you are, uh, that you, you, you need it as part of your emotional wholeness to develop some kind of wholeness to understand who you are. And also those kind of violent um, materials is, as, as, as you can say, the introduction into what other peoples go through. And it also stretches the people's or the reader's imagination. I think that's one of the one part of those kind of um, violent movies do yeah well uh we could we could go on and on about this. <laughs> the, the the moral uh i do think that probably uh it's done very well in japan because children early childhood and children are very protected from this sort of thing until a certain age yeah. and then you know it's allowed to come in and this is managed by the uh commercial publishers and video makers and there's a sense of protectiveness to a degree and then uh and then open it up you see 
but you know, I, I, I teased my students. I said, when we start Romeo and Juliet, I said, uh, how many street fights have you guys seen in your life? You know, the streets of Shibuya. Uh, and as reckless and rowdy as things get in Shibuya on Halloween, I've never seen a riot or a street fight or anything like you have in the play. And they they laugh about that. Uh, so they they do. If it, you know, it's it's fascinating that there were cultures where people could just one guy could make a gesture at another guy, and the next thing you know, <laughs> it's just a major. It's not over a political issue. It's not over anything. What the prince says is just air. It's just air, airy word. Well, what I want you to do is stay uh, a couple of minutes after we finish, uh, which will be, we're, we're heading to that now. But mm -hmm. I wanted to uh, tell you how much, again, I appreciate you coming in. I know that you've been very, very busy. And I know you must be very tired. That's a <laughs> translation of an often used Japanese word. Um, but otsukare uh, sama, you are you you gambari uh, mashita, <laughs> Mina. Uh, we uh, we we are going to enjoy a, a little bit of a slowdown in the pace here, and we really need to take advantage of it. And so here I came in and intervened on your uh, what's coming up is uh, a, a small break. But uh, you were gracious enough to come and join us today, Kyoko. And, and thank you. Thank you again so very much. Yeah, thank, um, thanks from my side, because um, being able to speak about my research and those kind of fields, it just, um, what should I say, turns the clock or um, makes the things about what I have to think or what I need to do. <laughs> or I have the um, what, uh, imagination, or I have to start thinking about something else and just adjust those kind of things. I think that's also important. Yeah. Thank well, you again. You're welcome. It's no reason to go into this business if we don't have a chance to do the things that we love. And I think that today we got a chance to, yes. to, to talk a little bit about the things. And, and this is something we don't get to do so often, particularly... <laughs> In a pandemic, we get we get caught into the um, administration and teaching and so forth. Uh, and okay, well, my, my best to you and yours over our uh, academic uh, break from teaching, and I hope to see you soon in person. Uh, yes, so, me too. Yeah. Bye. Bye. Bye.